They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. So says William Wallace in the movie Braveheart. And the movies are full of of characters that express our deep value of freedom. And one of the best examples, I think, is the genie in the animated movie Aladdin. And when Aladdin asked the genie what he would wish for, he responds with one word, freedom. And he goes on to say, oh, to be free, not to have to go, poof, what do you need? Poof, what do you need? Poof, what do you need? To be my own master. Such a thing would be greater than all the magic and all the treasures in all the world. So notice the genie's definition of freedom. To be our own master. Humans have wanted that from the very beginning. Bad guys in our movies, they're the ones who try to keep us from that. They want to control us. They want to keep us from freedom. So as Neo tells the ruling artificial intelligence in the Matrix. He says, I'm going, to show these, I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls. Without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. A world with nobody telling us what to do. That's what we want. Our villains want control. You know, they want to enslave us. So remember what Loki says in that first Avengers movie, he says, freedom is life's great lie. And then later, as he's forcing this group of people to kneel down to him, he says, is this not simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You are made to be ruled. In the end, you will always Neil, our enemies hate our freedom, right? Autonomy, really, that's what, that's what we want. And it began with an apple in one hand, so to speak. It wasn't an apple, but you get the idea. Adam and Eve, humanity, they wanted to make their own rules. They wanted to be the master of their life. But Adam and Eve found out that being our own master, you know, that kind of idea of freedom, it, it's, not, it's not really what we expect. It is life's great lie. When Adam disobeyed, when he rejected God's rule over him, he didn't get what he was hoping for. He didn't become his own master as he thought he would. He was just exchanging masters. He was handed over to his sin. In a way, he did become his own master. Just not the way he thought he was going to be. Now his own sin would rule over him. So the one, one of the things that we need to get straight from the start as we look at the passage this morning is that the freedom we sinfully crave, this neutral autonomy to rule ourselves, it's not really possible. When it comes to the dictate, what dictates our behavior? This version of neutrality where we just choose whatever we want. It's not real. That's what Paul teaches in our passage this morning. We are either slaves of sin or slaves of God. Now certainly there's more to the story than simply slavery. And we, we know that by union with the Son of God, 
We're adopted as sons and daughters of God. So we're not merely slaves, but we are. It is perfectly right when it comes to how we live, when it comes to how we behave. It's appropriate to refer to our options as either slaves of sin or slaves to God. And there is no third option. There's no middle there. Now, Jewish people and, and others in Paul's day, they did view the situation as though there was some, some sense of neutrality. Neutral enough, at least, to be able to obey God if we chose to do so. So many people, for example, in, in Paul's day, they believed that we are able to obey the law that God gave, and we could do that in our own strength. Now, they did believe that that God had graciously provided the law, and that God had graciously chosen them as his people. But they believed that the law was given to guide them in their obedience to salvation in the end. And what Paul said, of course, is that that is not possible. He's already told us both Jewish and Gentile people, we're all under sin's power. He's, He's told us that by union with Adam, We have all sinned. We now exist in a world ruled by sin, by our own sin. So Paul's gospel is not the good news that you can be good enough for God. His gospel begins with bad news, that we are not good enough, that we will never be good enough. And the good news is that God sent the Messiah. He sent Jesus, his son, who came as a substitute to do what we could not and would not do provides forgiveness, who gives us righteous status with God through faith alone, and not at all based on what we do. Now, the last thing Paul told us in chapter 6 is that we're not under the authority of the law, but under the rule of grace. You can imagine how that would go over with the Jewish person living in Paul's day. What do you mean, Paul? We're not under the law, but under grace. I mean, If you're not under the law's rule, if you're not under the law's authority, you're just going to sin with impunity. That's what Paul's addressing in our passage this morning. Beginning in verse 15 of chapter 6 of Romans. Now, he's when Paul's told the gospel, he's interacted with lots of people. And so this kind of a response is something he's encountered many times. And so he asks in Romans 6.15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? What's his answer? By no means. Absolutely not. You shouldn't even think of that idea. That's how he feels about that kind of an idea. The person who suggests that that's the logical outcome to just go ahead and sin, that that's the outcome of this grace, they don't understand what's actually happened. So Paul, in this passage, in verses 16 through 23, he goes on to explain what really has happened to us. So anybody who professes faith in Christ should pay attention to what Paul says here. This is how you should view your life. This is how you should think about sin, what he's going to talk about in this passage. You could turn to Romans 6 if you haven't already. It's on page 887 there in the Pew Bible. We're going to start, we've already kind of covered verse 15, so we'll be starting in verse 16. But Paul is explaining that despite what you might think when the gospel is by grace, believers don't just sin if they want to. Believers 
are freed from sin and enslaved to God. And he's going to give us three facts that explain our freedom from sin and our slavery to God. He's going to explain the nature of sin, the transfer of sin, and the results, or sorry, the, the nature of slavery, the transfer of slavery, and the results of slavery. And those facts, the, the nature, the transfer, the results of slavery, that encourages us. It encourages believers who profess faith in Christ to live the transformed life that the gospel has brought about in our lives. And the, the life that the gospel actually calls us to. So even though we're saved by grace, even though it's not based on anything that we do, that it's not that we have to follow the rules to save ourselves. Even though the, we're not under the law, we're under grace. It doesn't mean that we can just sin if we want to. It's not the attitude we should have. We have been freed from the slavery to sin, and we are now slaves of God. So what does that mean? That's what Paul's going to explain. He's going to start with the nature of slavery. And he does that beginning in verse 16. And what he does is he starts with something they already knew, like he's done before. That's why he begins with, do you not know? He's saying, once again, what I'm about to say is something you already know. And what he's talking about that they already knew about was slavery. Everybody in Rome understood what slavery was and what it was about. Slaves made up such a large chunk of the population that there, was a, there were some senators who tried to put forward this law in Rome to make slaves wear different clothing, clothing to differentiate them. There wasn't anything necessarily that would differentiate a slave from somebody else. And so they were saying, hey, let's make a law that the slaves have to wear different clothing so they can be pointed out. It didn't pass in the Senate because the Senate said, well, if slaves knew how many of them there were, they might revolt. They think that there was maybe up to a third of the people in Rome that were slaves, a third of the population in places like Rome. So there are, when we talk about slavery, there's the elephant in the room because we have a past with slavery. And so there are a few differences between slavery in the first century and and in Rome and slavery that was practiced in America. One, race played no part in slavery. And then unlike in American slavery, education was actually encouraged for slaves, at least for household slaves. An educated slave was even more valuable to a master in the first century. And on top of that, it was much more possible and even possibly more likely that somebody could get their own freedom towards the end of their life. So those are some differences. At the same time, a slave still belonged to someone else. They were considered property. They had no right to determine how they acted. They couldn't act outside their their master's will. They had no say over their life. They did as they were told. You could spot a slave, again, not by what they wore, but by the person to whom they were listening and obeying. That's how you could tell who was a slave and who was a master. And that's really what Paul's talking about in verse 16. He says, if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. The question we have when we read that is, is he saying that our obedience makes us slaves? Or is it that our obedience, or who we obey, identifies that we're slaves and identifies to whom we're slaves? And I've already suggested that it's the latter. Part of, of what goes into answering that question is the wording of the Greek text. So modern translations are trying to smooth out 
that Greek text. You could more literally translate it, to whom you present yourself as slaves and obedience, you are slaves to whom you obey, which sounds redundant. And that's why they're trying to smooth that out. But it doesn't actually require the word if or when. It's, it's basically just an axiom. It's just saying this is the way it works. This is what a slave is. A slave is a person that offers themselves completely in obedience to someone else. He's saying, you already know that. So there's no in, inherent suggestion in the te- text that, that this is what determines our slavery, what, how we act. He's not saying that how we act is what determines our slavery to either sin or God. He's already told us our situation. Our situation outside of Christ is we were involved in Adam's sin. We are slaves to sin. Outside of Christ, that's our situation. It's not that what we've done has produced that. What we, what we do demonstrates that we're slaves to sin. That's exactly what Jesus said as well. So you'll notice Paul gives two options here. Either you're a slave of sin or of obedience. Now, we'd expect him to say a slave of God, you know, a slave of sin or a slave of God. And he's going to say that in verse 22. But what he's doing here is he's highlighting a contrast between these two things. And he's doing that from the standpoint of our relationship to God. Every human creature is either obeying their creator or sinning against him. Those are the only two options. And so Paul's saying, and he's using these present tense verbs, he's talking about not just one act of sin or one act of obedience. He's talking about the overall characterization of your life. So a life that's characterized over time by sin shows that a person is a slave to sin. To sinning against God. And the life characterized over time by obedience shows that that person is a slave to obeying God. To God. So this is how Jesus put it in John 8, 34. He said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Their practice of sin demonstrates their slavery to sin. So Paul says that belonging to sin leads to death and belonging to obedience lives leads to righteousness. And in light of the fact that he's going to bring up eternal life, when we hear the word death, he's talking about something that has ongoing implications. It's not just you die and that's it, but that there's an eternal consequence related to death. And so he is, he is speaking of that here. And basically he's repeating what he talked about in chapter 5. Death is the result of sin. So being a slave to death leads, or sorry, being a slave to sin leads to death. So based on the comparison with death, when we hear the word righteousness, it says that it leads to death and the other leads to righteousness, we've interpreted the word righteousness sometimes to be pointing to our justification, which is an end time thing. And we could be tempted to, to make that, that connection here. But the problem is that that would negate everything Paul said about justification. Our justification is by faith, not by obedience. Our obedience doesn't lead to our justification. So he's not saying that. What he's saying is that obeying God leads to righteousness, leads to doing what is right. When you obey God, the result is you do what is right. You do what fits with his character. And so we're either sinning against God or obeying. And we're either facing death as a result of our sin or we are doing what is right is what he's talking about. Um, it's not an exact parallel. 
And what we want to do is we want to make it exact. But Paul is, it's very common for Paul to not make exact parallels. So this is what it looks like. But notice again, there, it's either or. There is no third option. There's no middle ground. You know, we could speculate about Adam's situation, what his freedom looked like, but that's irrelevant to us. We're not in Adam's situation in the garden. The Bible never talks about God providing something so that you can be in a third neutral state. That's not what the Bible talks about. Never. I've looked for it. I wanted to find it. There's no neutrality in life. You are either a slave of sin or you're a slave of God. Now, what that means is a person, you could be afraid to submit to Jesus because you don't want to lose your freedom. What you need to understand is you're not actually free. What we glorify, you know, as as being our own master, it's not real. It's an illusion. When we do what we want to do, Paul's saying we do that because we're slaves to what we want. And our wants aren't neutral. They're sinful. So we don't even realize that we're enslaved to what we want. And we can decide how we're going to go about doing what we want, but nobody can naturally say no to what they want. We can wait. We can find other means to do it, other alternative ways at getting what we want, but we're enslaved to pursue what we want. So if we're sinful, that's not the good situation. That's not what we want to be in. If we're separated from God, If that's our nature, then this so-called freedom is not good. If we have a sinful orientation, if we're oriented away from God and, and we refuse to submit to him naturally, if if our attitude is like William Henley describes in his poem Invictus, if our ideal is being the master of our faith. We are the captain of our soul, but we can't do anything other than that. Are we not slaves? We can't take a course other than is established by what our brains say we want. We're stuck in that situation. We're bound by the limitations of a sinful mind. So if our thinking is not what God created it to be, then we are bound. We are not able to to please our creator because from the beginning, we are set against him, opposed to him, will not submit to him. That's this slavery. We're not free. We either submit completely to our fallen mind, our sin, or we submit to God. There's no third option. Much as we would prefer to create that third option. So how do we change our situation? Here's the bad news. We can't change our situation. But Paul's going to tell us something that's happened to everyone who trusts in Christ. 
There was a transfer of ownership that took place. And so that's what Paul moves on from. He's talked about the nature of slavery. And in verses 17 through 20, he's going to explain this transfer of slavery. And, and the transfer explains why no genuine disciple of Jesus, no true believer should ever think that grace means, well, I can just sin if I want to. Paul begins in verse 17 with, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that something has happened. It's changed. And Paul tells believers, you were once slaves of sin, but you have become obedient from the heart. He's already explained these two options. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to obedience. And your actions show which master you belong to. And here he's saying that believers were in a state of slavery, but they obeyed. They have a new master. Demonstrated by obedience. So he says that it was sincere. It was from the heart. It wasn't a superficial change. It was a new covenant heart change. It's like he talks about, it's reminiscent of him talking about the circumcision of the heart in chapter 2, which points back to Jeremiah 31. And there in Jeremiah 31, he makes a distinction between being under the Mosaic law and having the law in your heart. So the ESV, it translates, you have become obedient. It's fine translation, but... I think you could, Paul, we could say a little less than the ESV says there. The CSB, I think, is really good in, in saying just exactly like the text, the Greek text, you obeyed. Because what Paul's pointing to, he's pointing to this change that's happened. He's pointing actually to our conversion. And he goes on to show exactly what happened in that conversion. So, in Paul's, God, or in Paul's letter to the Romans, there's a very close connection between faith and obedience. That's why he says at the beginning of the letter, he talks about the obedience of faith. That's what Paul's after. Paul was not after professions. He wasn't happy with somebody who raised their hand, said, I want to follow Jesus, and their life never changed. That's not genuine faith. So he wanted something that immediately demonstrates itself in obedience. It's not perfect obedience. He could even go so far as to talk, to describe a response to the gospel as obedience like he does in Romans 10, 16. So what does he mean here? Well, he says that they obeyed the standard of teaching. And the standard of teaching, that's a hard, it's a hard phrase to interpret. That's a lot of translations are trying to understand that. The word standard is the same word that was translated type in chapter 5, verse 14. It just has to do with a pattern, which fits with obedience. Because obedience involves falling in line with something. So... This teaching is the source for this pattern. The teaching is really the gospel. And Paul uses the same word in Philippians to describe people who follow his example. They're following in line with how he lives in Philippians 3.17. So these Roman believers, they were slaves of sin, but they obeyed the pattern of living that flowed out of the good news about Jesus. So there's this change of life that Paul's talking about here. Their lifestyle was one of sin, but now it's changed to obedience. Their lifestyle has fallen in line with the life that the gospel calls us to. Now, we don't perfectly obey. But the life of the believer is over time characterized by obedience versus life before Christ, which is over time characterized by sin. And that's what he's talking about here, that change that has happened. 
And he explains how it happened. He says that this is the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That word committed, it can be used in an active sense to talk about passing on tradition or passing on teaching. And it's used that way by Paul and other places. But here it's passive. And when this word is used in a passive sense, it's talking about being handed over into somebody else's power. So it describes being handed over to somebody else's authority. Jesus was handed over using this word in this particular way, passively, to he was handed over to the Jewish leaders and then later handed over to Pilate into their authority to do with him as they pleased. So Paul's talking in line with what he's talking about here with this transfer. It's a little cumbersome in the way that he says it, but he's, he's trying to say we were handed over to the power of this teaching. It's good news about Jesus, our Savior and Lord. So he then says in verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. In verse 16, it was slaves of sin and slaves of obedience. Now it's we've been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Now he's highlighting the difference in the behavior. This is a change that's happened. Your life is no longer characterized by sin but by righteous behavior, by behavior that lines up with God's character. That's the change that occurs at conversion. And again, it's not, we're perfect at that point. We're never going to be perfect in this life, but there is a change that happens in our life. Notice though the passive verbs here. You were committed, were committed in verse 17, as in someone committed you to this teaching. You were set free in verse 18, as in someone else set you free. And the last one's obscured by translation, but you could translate it, you were enslaved to righteousness. Now, that's shocking for us to hear. So you can understand why English translations don't do that. But it is this passive idea. Someone else made you a slave to righteousness. You didn't do that. And the assumed someone in every case is God. So this is not a change that we made. God brought about this change. He handed us over to the power of the gospel. He did that. We didn't do it. He freed us from our sin. He transferred us to be slaves of righteousness. So when it comes to how we go from one slavery to another, Paul is not pointing to our choice, our decision, our agency. He's very clear. Faith obviously does have a a, a part in this conversion what he's talking about here is how did the change happen how did you go from believing to not or not believing to believing how did that change happen he says it's not your agency god did it that's why he says thanks be to god if it was our agency he would say thank you romans for changing your allegiance but he says thanks be to god that you were slaves of sin and now this change has happened Imagine if that weren't the case. Imagine if it really was our agency. We just could decide, you know what? I don't want to be a slave to sin anymore. Were we really a slave? Could slaves do that? Could they just decide, you know what? I'm not going to be a slave today. The fact that he describes our situation as slavery to sin means that we can't do it. We can't free ourselves. So God had to do that for us. Paul then takes this pause at verse 19. In verse 19, he's trying to explain his analogy because there is a limitation 
in, in relating our situation to God or with God to slavery. There's, there's an obvious problem because human slavery, the institution of human slavery, that is wrong. Humans should not own other humans. So there's a limit here. And it doesn't matter the fact that at the time, there was a, 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 limited, a limited circumstance for economics. Right? The economy of the time couldn't really support people in need. But the fact that their economy wasn't advanced enough to provide for people outside of slavery, it doesn't justify slavery. So this is not a perfect comparison. Paul's admitting that. Because of human sinfulness, you couldn't look at the institution of slavery and say it's just like that. It's not just like that. But it wasn't inaccurate when it comes to our rights. As creatures who are made by God, whose lives are presently sustained by God, as creatures who are completely dependent on God for everything about us, we have no right to say how our lives should be. And God has every right to say what our lives should be. He, he is the one who keeps us alive. We belong to him. So he has every right to tell us the way our lives should be. So Paul says that he has to speak in human terms because of our natural limitations. Natural limitations of being a part of a fallen world like we are. Because of that, we need this analogy. We need to understand our situation because we, we don't naturally know how we should respond to this grace. So in our fallen state, we don't know what we ought to do. That's why this question can come up in verse 15. So the imagery of slavery is necessary so that we can understand our situation and how out of place sin is for the believer. So Paul then, he moves on to the, the, the main takeaway really in verse 19. For his teaching. This is what he really wants us to to take away in terms of our application. He says, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. We used to present ourselves as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. We used to offer ourselves to this uncleanness, to what is unapproved by God. We used to We used to live for and pursue behavior that was lawless. It was not what, it actually went against what the law taught. And so Paul says that this boundless, limitless, lawless life leads to even more lawlessness. What it does is it takes us further and further away from God. That's what slavery to sin does. It takes us further away from God. But now, there's something that's happened. Now we offer ourselves in service to righteousness. So we live our lives with the goal of doing what is right. And that leads to what he calls sanctification. Sanctification has to do with holiness. Sanctus. Sanctum. All these things are holy. Saint. So in this case, the word's talking about becoming more and more holy. A saint is somebody who is set apart for God's service. A priest is set apart to serve in the temple. And so in the same way, a believer at conversion is set apart for God's service. But what happens in our life is we pursue right living and become more and more dedicated, more and more committed to God throughout our life. So you can see the two directions. Slavery moves you either further and further away from God 
when you're a slave of sin, or it moves you closer and closer to God when you're his slave. And what Paul's saying is here, he's not saying that you shouldn't move further away from God as though slavery to sin was something that was still possible for a believer. He's not saying that. He's assuming you have been made slaves of righteousness and you're moving closer and closer to him. So we're progressively becoming more and more holy. That is happening. For everyone who has the Holy Spirit, that is happening. What he's saying here is is the manner of our dedication to sin before Christ should be equal to our dedication to God now. He's making a comparison. He says, just as you were serving sin, so now serve righteousness. So is that how you would describe your obedience to God? Are you pursuing obedience the way that you used to pursue sin? Is your dedication to God, does that look like the way you were dedicated to your sin? You know the ways that we would put ourselves in a position so that we could sin? Because we, we craved that sin, we wanted to do it, so we, we gave ourselves opportunities. We put ourselves in opportunities. Say, do that for God now. Put yourself in, in opportunity and do that with the same fervor, with the same dedication, with the same attitude. And verse 20 points out that, how that wasn't an option before. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You know, we are free from sin now and slaves to righteousness, but... We used to be free from righteousness and slaves to sin. We, we weren't able to do what is right. Not from the heart, not the way that God calls us to, not in a way that fit with his character. We couldn't do that. So he's saying, basically, now's the time to get on with it. Like, we couldn't do this before. We were unable to, to do what is right. Now we can. So it's all the more reason to take the same fervor we used to have for doing the wrong thing and to do the right thing. We should be committed in that same way. And this, that's the very reason why God freed us. He freed us from our sin, transferred us to his ownership so that we would be different. So how can we look at sin as though it's, it's a reasonable option for us? Again, I'm not saying that we don't sin, we don't fail, but we should not look at sin like, oh, that's just, a, that's an option. We could do that. It goes against everything God has done for us. And if we were to continue in sin, Understand, what happens is we we don't lose our salvation. If we continue in sin, all we're doing is demonstrating who our true master is. That that God is not our master. If our life goes unchanged, we're demonstrating that whatever profession of faith we have, whatever, whatever way that we think we believe, it is not saving faith. Because saving faith does produce a change. There is a change that occurs. We cannot just continue unabated in sin. There will be a change. So we don't need to be under the letter of old covenant law to be doing what is right. We have a new covenant change that's occurred in our heart. That transformation is why we're different. The law could not change you. Rules cannot change you. Just learning about the law cannot change you. That's why we do not simply teach our kids This is how you obey. And we just get on them to make sure you're following the rules. Follow the rules. Follow the rules. They're fallen just like we're fallen. They need Jesus just like we need Jesus. So not only do we say this is the way that you ought to go, but when you fail, that's why you need Jesus. Because you can't change yourself. You need Jesus. That's the good news. So has he changed you? 
Now, I'm not concerned about what your experience of conversion was. There are plenty of born-again Christians who couldn't tell you exactly when they were born again for a variety of reasons. The Bible actually never encourages a dramatic emotional experience. So if that's not your circumstance, you shouldn't feel like, oh, I'm not converted. The Bible never does that. It never talks about this, is, this needs to be true. You need to have this emotional, drawn-out experience. I just want to know, has your life been transformed? You may not understand what happened or how it happened. And I'm not asking if you never sin. Because Paul's very clear, or John's very clear, actually, that believers still sin. In his first letter, he talks about anyone who says they don't have sin is a liar and the truth of the gospel is not in him. But he also says, if we walk in darkness, if we live a life that's characterized by sin, we are not having fellowship with the one who is light. So has your life changed directions? If it has, you didn't do it. God did that. But that change must be there. Or else there, there isn't a work that's, that's happening in you. So recognize that there is an obedience that must accompany your faith. It's not optional. It's not something you can just choose to do. It is our life. It is what we pursue. And there are some results from this transfer that's occurred. And Paul's going to go on to talk about that in the last three verses of this chapter. The results of slavery. And he doesn't just talk about the results of slavery to God. He, he compares that, he contrasts that with the results of slavery to sin. And he does that, again, to encourage a person who's professed faith in Christ to live the life that the gospel calls you to. So again, he's not saying sinless perfection. He's not saying that if you ever sin, you're not a believer. He's saying that your life should be transformed by this good news, that the good news calls you to a new life. And so he tells us about these results to encourage us. We are sanctified by the Spirit and by his word. So we hear these truths so that we understand this is the way we ought to respond to sin. And we can then, we're empowered to do that. So as you hear these results, this is what, what Paul's encouraging. He's encouraging you to live this out, live out this change. So he mentions fruit in these last two verses, or these last three verses. Fruit has to do with what your life produces. It's, it's another metaphor for behavior. But it's one that talks about how it demonstrates something about you. The way Jesus taught it, taught it, he said that, you know, a good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. So if you're producing bad fruit, it gives you evidence that you're a bad tree. If you're producing bad fruit, it shows you that you're a slave to sin. If that's what people see as the production of your life, it points to who we are, slaves of sin in that case. And these, this, this fruit, it has an effect. The output of our life, whatever the fruit is, it has an effect. It has a result. The fruit of a believer, well, fruit of a person before their conversion, it results in shame now that we are converted. We can look back on our life. A believer doesn't look back on their life and think about the good old days when they were sinning. They're ashamed of their behavior. So, output it it has this result of shame and then he says that 
as he's been arguing, the end result of life, the end product of a sinful life is death. That's sin's final product, death. Paul's main focus, though, isn't on that former fruit. He's, he's contrasting it to get to what he, he is focused on. And that's why he uses the word those, those things. And he says, but now, in the beginning of verse 22, he's saying, that was then, but this is now. That fruit was in the past, but this fruit that I'm going to talk about, that's the fruit that you produce now. And you can again see he's, he's not giving instructions. This is how you become a slave of God. This is how, he's not saying that. He's saying you were one and now you're another. So he says now you have been fr- set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And because of that transfer, again, it's passive, pointing to God. Because we're set free by God from sin, enslaved to God by him, because of that transfer, we produce different fruit. The output of slavery to God leads to greater and greater holiness, to sanctification. But he does, he does phrase things slightly differently here when he talks about this final outcome of eternal life. He doesn't say it's exactly the same as the way sin talks about. But again, he's talking about eternal things. So death there is an eternal reality that he's talking about. And life here is also eternal. That slightly different phrase there at the end is explained by verse 23. So how slavery to sin relates to death is different than how slavery to God relates to eternal life. They don't relate the same way. And, and Paul, in the last section, he was making a subtle comparison to a soldier. When he talked about presenting your members, as sin, uh, to, members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, in verse 13, or presenting your members to God as instruments for righteousness, I pointed out how that was, that was imagery from a soldier using instruments or weapons for the service of their king. Well, here he uses a word in verse 23 for the pay that a soldier would receive. So Paul's comparing death to the pay soldiers receive for their services to sin. You get paid because you did something for someone else. You earn pay. It's compensation for what you've done. You deserve it. Death is the deserved compensation for a life of service to sin. It's the fair result for living in slavery to sin. And that tells you something about slavery to sin. Even though we cannot save or or free ourselves from our slavery to sin, Paul is saying that our circumstance is fair. That it's deserved. Again, some of us might want to to argue with that. But that is what Paul's teaching here. There are some people, they've established, this is what the ground rules are for fairness. This is what everybody has to abide by, including God. And so they say, this is not fair. What Paul's talking about here, or the way that you're talking about it, Kurt, is not fair. God can't hold me accountable if I'm a slave, incapable of freeing myself. So two things are in order here. As I've said before, God is the standard for fairness. No human could ever evaluate whether God has done something fair or not. The only morality that exists is God's character. So we can only see and observe God and what he does and say, that's what fairness is. So we can't actually, if this is what the text is saying, we can't say that's not fair. That's nonsense. That's like coming up with a morality that doesn't exist. But second of all, we need to understand that what 
Paul describes in terms of our sin is always fully volitional. We do this. It's not automated. We're the ones acting. So we are serving sin, but without protest. If our sin tells you to lie, if your sin tells you to lie, you're the one who lies. If, if our sin tells us to commit immorality, we're still the ones who actually commit the immorality. And we are held accountable for what we have done. Paul's saying that that is fair. So eternal death is the just wage for our sin. We receive that because we deserve it. We earned it. But that is not the case with eternal life. We do not receive eternal life as a wage. Paul's making a major contrast here. As opposed to the wages of sin, he refers to the free gift of God. That's one one word in Greek, free gift, and it's related to the word translated throughout the New Testament as grace. So what he's saying is that this gift, it was given on the basis of grace, on the basis of undeserved kindness. We did not earn it. It was not deserved. Eternal life doesn't come by means of our obedience. So we do not take that away from this passage. It's not merited or earned by what we do. He says it's given in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, we receive eternal life only because we've been united to Christ through faith on the basis of God's undeserved kindness. And that is what sets us apart from every other religion and every other version of Christianity that claims to be Christian. The promised benefits of salvation in Christianity are not earned. That is not why obedience is necessary. Salvation is based entirely on what Christ has earned for us. He earned our forgiveness. So we need not offer any penance to establish our forgiveness. Christ won that completely for us. He earned our reconciliation. He earned our righteous status for us. We don't do anything. We don't contribute in any way to our righteous status. And think about the beauty of that. Could you imagine if God did design it so that sinful humans had to work their way, earn their way to acceptance? What would that really be? Our our obedience would be nothing more than, than a duplicitous, manipulative act where we're saying, God, I'll do this for you if you'll do what I want. It's not sincere. If we had to earn our way to acceptance, we'd be doing that simply to get out of the the punishment we should get and to get something good for ourselves. So Paul says you can't do that. There's no halfway house for slaves of sin. You're either serving sin or you're serving God. And the difference between the two is not your willpower or your achievement. It's grace. He freed us from our sin through the cross. He transformed our hearts so that we will serve a new master. So obedience is necessary. But as the evidence of his work of transformation, not as our work of transformation. Our redemption from sin, our freedom from sin, that's been accomplished, as Dustin Kensrue puts it. There's no deed that can redeem us There's no right, no magic word. Only by the work of Jesus can salvation be secured. 
It is finished. He has done it. Let your weary heart rejoice. Our redemption is accomplished. Raise a shout with ragged voice. That's why we obey our new master. Because he has done it. He has rescued us. Join me in prayer. Father, these these kinds of passages can be scary to us. They can scare us because when we hear about this change and we look at our lives, we still see our sin. Help us to recognize and balance, really, this truth that there must be a change. There must be this incremental growth from glory to glory. And yet, we are still sinners. So instead of of being scared of what this means for us, Pray that it would stimulate repentance, quick repentance. That it would strengthen our hands so that we don't get defeated when we struggle with the sin. When we struggle over and over again with the sin. That we would not be defeated. That we would be able to recognize that that sin is not powered over us. That you have freed us from that sin. That we would, we would recognize that. We would rest in your your freedom, freedom to serve you with our whole lives. That we would turn quickly from our sin based on that power. That when we feel defeated, we would be able to look at what you've done for us. We would be given confidence in the face of a defeat. Pray that your word would empower us to live as we are, your servants, your slaves. And that we would recognize that that that's the kind of life everyone should want, to serve someone who truly loves us, who truly has what is best for us. Help us to see the glory, just the amazing situation that we are in. Father, I pray anyone here who does not know you, who, who doesn't want to submit to you, who imagines that they are free, they would recognize their slavery to themselves and their sin. That your spirit would open their eyes to that. Your spirit and your gospel would transform their heart. That they would turn and trust in your son. Even today. We ask it based on the love that you've already shown us in Christ. Amen.